you today. So if you just come with this attitude to receive, to hear from God, you are going to leave different than the way that you came in. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to get right into this message. We're jumping right into week three of our series, Orthodoxology. And if you're hearing that and you're thinking, my vocabulary must be lacking, I'm not familiar with that word, don't worry. You're in good company because I made it up. It is not a real word, but I invented this word to describe this idea that right beliefs glorify God. So as a Christian, our desire, our purpose is to glorify God. And one of the primary ways we do that is by having right beliefs. We glorify God when we walk with him, when we walk in obedience to him. And orthodoxology comes from two words, orthodox, which means right, true, correct beliefs, and then doxology, which means praise to God. So in this series, we've been learning about right beliefs and wrong beliefs, because what we believe determines how we behave, and how we behave shapes who we become. So what we believe matters. We want to believe the right things so we can be obedient to the right things. And it's that concept that Paul is talking about in the passage we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, Corinth was a major city in ancient Greece that Paul visited on his second missionary journey. And while he was there, he planted a church. That's the church that he is writing to. Now, at this point in Paul's life, he is a seasoned missionary. He has been through some things. He's experienced hardships. He's been imprisoned. He's witnessed miracles and seen the hand of God move in this region while he's planted churches all over the Mediterranean area. And so when Paul writes to them, he's speaking to them from a place of experience. His primary concern when he's writing to them is to help them be in unity because this church was divided and to help them walk in purity because in their divisions, they had let some other stuff creep in. They were divided over personalities. I like this guy. I like the way he preaches. I like this style of ministry. Divided over personalities. They were divided over preferences. I like church to go this way. I like it when we sing these songs. They were divided over processes. I think this is the way that church should happen. All these different things. And between their personalities, preferences, and processes, their priorities were wrong. So Paul comes in and he says to them, listen, I need you to know that church, our beliefs only have one foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. That foundation is the gospel. It's the fact that he is the son of God in the flesh. He took upon himself your sin and your shame. He went to a cross, died, was resurrected, and through faith and trust in him, that's how you say, that's our foundation. That's what we believe. But understand, what you put on top of that matters. And so he wants to make sure that they're using the right materials, and this is where we're going to jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Should have given everybody enough time to get there by now. You can have your Bible like this. 
You can use an iPad, a phone, or we'll put the words on the screen. It's always a great way to follow along. I'm reading from the NIV translation today. This is what it says. Paul writing, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. That someone else, he's talking about the people that he's talking to. So I laid the foundation and the, the teaching that you receive, that's how you're building on it. It said, each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, talking about marble, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. So he's saying there is a judgment day. There is a second coming of Jesus. There is a day where all will be revealed, truth will be made known, and how you build on this foundation, well, it's going to be tested. It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work, your belief systems. If what has been built survives, that's the gold, the silver, the marble, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flame. So if you think back, if you're here the first week, we talked about these rings of orthodoxy, how there's saving faith, and then there's essential beliefs, and then there's Christian doctrine, and then there's community distinctions, all these things. He's saying how you build on that foundation matters. And you might build with some stuff that's not very quality. You might build with some straw, some hay, the good news is you're still going to make it to heaven. It says that stuff's going to be burned up, but you'll be saved. You'll escape the flames. But he says, I don't want you to use bad materials. I want you to build with the good stuff. I want you to build with some quality sources. How you build on this foundation matters. So I want to speak to you from this subject today. This is the title of my message. I'm building something. I'm building something. Just so I know that you're with me, go ahead and turn to somebody that you like. If you don't like anybody, then we'll just know you're an introvert. But uh, turn to somebody you like and just tell them, I'm building something. That, that's not just the title. Some of you need some friends, okay? We have groups at Velocity Church, so you can find some friends. We have teams you can join. You can, can get connected with people. You're not talking to anybody. I'm going to pray for you. It's not just the title of my message, though. It, it's really the process that I want to engage in this sermon. I, I want to build something as we engage together. I'm going to frame this up and lay out the pieces, and I'll put it together at the end because I'm building something. I like to pray. I know I need God's help whenever I get up here. Uh, many times I'll, I mean, I'm in prayer before, and I'll pray right before I get up here. I, I'll tell you a, a funny story. Right before I got up here, I was pray over my kids at night before I put them to bed. And uh, kind of just to be honest with you, as a parent, sometimes you're tired. And uh, sometimes you don't want to pray. You might judge me as a pastor or as a man or as a parent. But sometimes I don't want to pray. And so at <laughs> the, those nights where it's late and I'm saying goodnight to them, and usually they'll say, Dad, will you pray for me? I'll just put my hand on them and I'll say, Lord, bless them. And that's it. And... Uh, <laughs> 
I just, I asked my son Oliver before I got up here, I just said, hey, will you pray with me? Just pray for me. I got to use this message. And he just said, Lord bless him. And that was it. <laughs> so scripture says, be careful of the measure that you use. It will be measured back to you. So anyway, I, I want to pray though. I, I'm not doubting the quality of his prayer, but will you pray with me? <laughs> So go to the Lord. God, thank you for today. Thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And every time we open up your word, it gives light into our life. It shows us where to walk, how we're supposed to step. So God, we just invite you into this moment. And I ask God that you would speak through me. You know what each person's facing, what they're dealing with, what they're going through. God, I believe there's people here that need an answer, that need hope. And Lord, we can find that in you. So Holy Spirit, take these words that I've prepared transform them, personalize them, individualize them to each person. Let them have a, a Holy Spirit word and shape us, God, form us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody who agrees with that can say amen. amen. Love a good amen. How many of you are handy? Handy? Can you just raise your hand? Not handsy. That's different. That's different sermon. Hand, hand you're good with Okay, I just see you're, you're handy. Can I see your hands? Okay, I need some volunteers. I got some projects that I'm looking to do. Do you guys jot those down? Um, I'm not handy. It might not be a surprise to you. I'm not really, really that handy. Uh, I mean, I've built a few things in my life. I, uh, I, I can build some things. Like, I can, I can build a sermon. Do that, right? I can build Legos. That's within my realm. Uh, I can build suspense. I'm good at doing that. Uh, but I'm not good at construction, which is funny because one of my jobs after high school was construction. Feel bad for any house that I worked on, but I'm not really good with my hands. One of my greatest achievements that it's maybe the, the crowning work of my construction and I, you know, celebrate it as a victory to this day, even though it was three years ago, was I built some shelves in my house. I think about shelves are probably the easiest thing that you can build if you really get down to it, but I built some shelves. They're still standing. If you ever come over to my house, I will make it as part of the tour. You need to see them because I'm really proud of this fact. But I, I'm, I'm not really great at building, and it's funny because I'm not good at baking, and I use that as an example, and I'm not good at building, and here Paul is talking about building. But it, it's funny because when Paul wants to describe the process that happens in our life with faith in Christ, he uses this idea of building. It's interesting to me because typically in the Bible, when it wants to illustrate a spiritual truth, most often, most generally, it'll use an organic process to illustrate spiritual things. In fact, that's how this chapter starts. Paul talks about, hey, I shouldn't have to treat you like babies. You should grow. You should be mature by now, but you, you can't handle it yet. He starts talking about this organic growth. And then from there, he talks about agriculture. He talks about how we're the field and God's fellow laborers, and he's talking about that growth process. But it's interesting that by the time we get to verse 10, where we jumped in, he switches from talking about agriculture to speaking about architecture. 
And that's because while it's true, we do grow in our faith. What Paul wants them to know is that belief systems are built. Belief systems are built. That's important because we live in an age of ideology. Now, ideology can sometimes be an all-encompassing word. I just want to use the dictionary definition of ideology. The Oxford Dictionary definition defines ideology as a system of ideas and ideals, in particular ones that form the basis of economic theory or political policy. The way ideology works in our life is it takes a truth, one truth, part of a truth, and makes it the whole. It, it takes, ideology takes a good thing and it makes it the ultimate thing. And it could start with a good idea, but making that one thing the whole thing, making that good thing the ultimate thing, distorts the truth that it came from. It doesn't really matter what the good thing is. You could start with equality, justice, freedom, love, individualism, grace, holiness, liberty. All of those are good things. I love all those things. But anytime you prioritize one of those as the main thing, the result is disaster. Because the common denominator with all ideology is that it puts humanity at the center. It puts humanity and its ways of doing things. It puts humanity and its autonomy from God as the foundation rather than putting God as the foundation. And Paul tells us, the foundation has to be Jesus. In your belief system, the foundation has to be Jesus. That's his rightful place. We were created to build our lives on the truth of who Jesus is. And anytime we put something else at the center, anytime we put something else, even a good thing, as the foundation, the Bible doesn't call it ideology, the Bible calls it idolatry. That's why ideology is the major idolatry of our generation. Think about this for a minute. There is a religious devotion to our ideologies. They offer an alternative means of identity. They offer a community that you can belong to. They offer a hope of a better tomorrow. You can go through the whole thing. They have their own creeds. They have their own mode of salvation, sanctification, and discipleship. They have their own prophets, but it is all without God. So the temptation of ideology isn't that it causes you to reject God. It's that it causes you to replace God. This is funny because 
we think like this is a new idea. When we think about our ideologies in our world today, we think that it's something new. But this has been going on for a long time. I was reading just this week in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, you probably know the story. Moses leads the Israelites out of their bondage, out of slavery, out of Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. They get to Mount Sinai. And once they get there, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive from God the Ten Commandments. It's while he's up there, the Israelites say, we don't know what happened to Moses. It's been a long time. It's been 40 days. Actually, they say, who is Moses? We, we don't know who he is. So they go to Aaron. They say, we need you to make us a god. So you probably know the story. They take off their gold that they got from Egypt. They, they melt it. They form it into a gold calf. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part, you read this, Exodus 32, verses 4 and 5. He says, hear me, O Israel, this is your God. Then it says, tomorrow will be a day of celebration unto the Lord. That word, the Lord, is Yahweh. It, it, they, they were putting God's name on their sin. And anytime you put God's name, anytime God is backing your false ideas, well, you can do anything you want. So what's challenging is that the ideologies of our day draw from the Christian faith. So you're left with something that sounds good, but it rings hollow. Now, I hope you understand, I'm not talking about politics today. That's not what I'm talking about. But because our ideologies have become our worldviews, it causes us to view everything through a political lens. That's why you open up the Bible, you read, in the beginning, God created them, male and female. And if you hear that, and that hits you as offensive, that's because you have more loyalty to your ideology than orthodoxy. And in an effort to not be political, a lot of Christians have stopped being biblical. So how do we deal with following Jesus? How do we live and follow Jesus in an age of ideology? Well, the answer is with orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is about obedience to Christ. It is a body of truth that we can safely say. We, not I can safely say, not you can say, we can safely say, this is what followers of Jesus do. This is how followers of Jesus live. Because there are beliefs, values, and principles that Christianity has held for the past 2,000 years that are part of the identity of what it means to be a Christian. They're things that extend beyond the creeds. And the summation of all these concepts is what's called Christian orthodoxy. Now, it's not just the creeds. Sometimes people think it's Christian orthodoxy is the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is great. It's beautiful. But the Apostles' Creed is something that came in a response to heresy. The, the creed is great, 
But the creed doesn't say anything about ethics. Creeds don't say anything about your body. Creeds don't say anything about your sexuality. Creeds don't say anything about your money. Creeds don't say anything about your relationships. But I want you to know Christian orthodoxy talks about all of those things. And so when we embrace orthodoxy, we're saying we have an allegiance to Christ. We have an allegiance to Jesus over our ideology. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because we are an orthodox church. We're a modern church, but we have an ancient faith. I won't hide that from you. We are an orthodox church. We are a Jesus church. That means we trust his teachings. It means we do our best to live them out. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fall short. All of us do, sure. But we do our best to live them out one daily decision at a time. We trust his wisdom. We trust his goodness. And we don't apologize for our love of Jesus. We don't apologize for our allegiance to him. We don't apologize for our trust in scriptures as the word of God. So this is what our beliefs are built on. And the reason this is important because what we're being formed into, Paul tells us in the next verse. Look at what he says. He says, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. See, the reason it matters what you build with is because you are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting, look at the next verse. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you all together are that temple. I find it interesting that Paul brought that up because even back in this day, there was an ideology that wanted to destroy what was being built. See, there is no way to talk about orthodoxy without mentioning that we are living in a generation-wide movement to deconstruct orthodoxy. Now, deconstruction can mean different things to different people, but generally, people talk about deconstruction, what they mean is I am questioning what I have known to be true. I'm questioning the truth. Typically, it's associated with postmodernism, which postmodernism challenges the idea that there is objective truth. It emphasizes the role of language, emphasizes the role of power in shaping our understanding of reality. That's why Paul goes on in the very next verse. He says, well, don't deceive yourselves. Because if any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you can actually become wise. Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So he says two things. The standards of the age and the wisdom of the world, 
both of those phrases are used to convey the system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and institutionalized in culture that are corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and redefinition of good and evil. I had someone ask me the other day, I said, well, I told him I was going to talk about this. I said, well, would you ever say that there's a good form of deconstruction? Like, would you ever say that? Now, for me, I would just say, personally, no. And the reason I would say that is because deconstruction, as it's known, carries with it an ideology. But if you just want to talk about the process of unlearning something, and learning something new, I would tell you, we already have a word for that. It's called education. It's called learning. It's called growth. It's called training. It's called discipleship. It's called transformation. That's the process of learning. And in this process of learning orthodoxy, it is absolutely appropriate to use scripture to critique the places in the church that have been corrupted by the world. Absolutely. Anytime we're holding up scripture and we're saying, does this line up? We can do that all day. That's called a return to scripture. That's a good thing. That has been done for centuries before us. But we don't have to start from scratch. We don't have to figure out this life and find everything out for ourselves. We can lean on the help of past generations. It's part of orthodoxy. I'll give you an example. I was uh, driving my son Reese to work. Reese is 16. And uh, I'll just pro tip for parents. You have a teenager, you got to value that car time because they are a captive audience and you can talk about whatever you want. And so uh, we, we like this time. I, I really cherish it and get to talk to him about different things in his life. And uh, I just said, hey, Reese, tell me some of the stuff going on in your, your life that you're really proud of. And he shared a few things with me. And I was like, man, that is awesome. That's exciting. I'm really proud of you too. You should be proud of that. That's a, that's a big deal. You've worked hard. You've done that on your own. I celebrate that. That's amazing. I said, hey, tell me the things in your life right now that you're frustrated with. What's frustrating you? And he was sharing some of the things he was frustrated with. I got to talk to him about that. And I just said, Reese, I want you to always let me know what you're, you're proud of in your life because I want to celebrate those things with you. But I also want you to tell me what you're frustrated with because I've lived longer than you. I've been 16 before. I know what it's like. And you don't have to figure out this stuff on your own. You can lean on my experience. You can lean on my wisdom. And that's exactly what we get to do with orthodoxy. You don't have to try and figure out this life. There's people that have lived and you lean on their experience, on their wisdom, on their intelligence. And that's what we get to do. Well, so anytime you want to use scripture to critique 
where the church has been corrupted by the world? We should. Most often, though, when people are talking about deconstruction, they are using the world to critique Scripture. It's not the foundation. It's not the foundation. So what I want to do in our time remaining, I want to give you three things. I'll move through these fairly quickly. That'll give you a framework for formation. Things that are going to help you build your faith, not deconstruct it. And what I'm going to talk about might surprise some of you. Because the first thing I'm going to tell you is that you should fact check your faith. Scripture can be scrutinized. It is okay to fact check your faith, and you should. One of, well, not the main reason, but one reason that people often deconstruct their faith, dismantle their belief systems, is because of poor teaching. It's understandable because a large portion of the church is teaching. It is a core aspect of what happens when we gather together. And so because the church has this teaching function, well, sometimes people grow up under poor teaching and it creates problems because people reject the teaching and what they are doing, they're, they're thinking they're rejecting Christianity. They're thinking they're rejecting Jesus, but really what they're rejecting is bad doctrine. And we could be here all day talking about this, but um, there's examples of this all over. You always see it in the extremes. I, I've seen it in extreme Reformed theology. I've seen it in extreme charismatic theology, where an example would be where, particularly around the doctrine of suffering, there's a lot of bad teaching around the doctrine of suffering. What is that? I mean, part of being a Christian is to know how to suffer well. So some Poor teaching would say that anything bad that happens in your life is the will of God. And there's some tragic, there's evil in the world, and an extreme would say that's to the glory of God. It's a poor teaching. Another example, the same doctrine would say the bad things that happen in your life is because you don't have enough faith. You didn't believe right. You didn't do right. It's a poor teaching. Now, those aren't the only examples, but people react to the poor teaching because they don't want to be a part of that. That's why I want you to know the Bible for yourself. I'm going to all every week do my best to present to you the truth of God's word in context, help you understand it, but make no mistake, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you in God's word for yourself. Even if you're a beginner, find some simple ways. Get the Bible app on your phone, you can put a little widget on there so that there's a scripture a day that pops up. Read the scripture a day. Listen to an audio Bible. Get in a group where you can discuss scripture together. Prioritizing coming on the weekend. All of this stuff is a way to get God's word in your life. It's so important that you know the scripture. Why? So you can fact check your faith. This is what the Jews did when Paul was preaching. Let me show this to you in Acts 17. Him and Silas they left Thessalonica. They went to a place called Berea. Acts 17, verse 11 says, These people were more receptive than those in Thessalonica. They were very willing to receive the message. And every day, they carefully examined the scriptures to see if those things were so. So these people 
were more receptive. They easily received it, but they didn't stop there. Just because they were receptive, they said, we're going to check these things out for ourselves. We're going to see if this is right. We're going to see if this lines up with God's word. John the Apostle, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he wrote the Gospel of John, wrote the letters of John. In 1 John chapter 4, this is what he said. Dearly loved friends, don't always believe everything you hear just because someone says it's a message from God. Test it first to see if it really is. There are many false teachers around. Now he goes on to explain how to test it. He says, somebody comes at you with a message, Asking this, do they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, that he died and rose again, that what he said is true? Do they believe that? There's a lot of people that have critiques of the church, that have critiques of Christianity. They don't believe Christianity. They're critiquing Scripture from a world's perspective. The church, admittedly, has its faults. It's made up of people. If you got it figured out, I'll let you take the mic. I'm still working through some stuff. Church has its faults, for sure. I would say it's not above the critique of Scripture. But if you're going to critique the church, make sure you use the language we and us. Are you know where you're at? A lot of people that have a critique of the church that are not following Jesus. In fact, when we fact check our faith, we don't just need to examine what we're hearing. We need to examine ourselves. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, look at what he said to them. He said, check up on yourselves. Are you really Christians? Do you pass the test? Do you feel Christ's presence and power more and more within you? Or are you just pretending to be Christians when you actually aren't at all? Man. Paul says, you got to check up on yourself. Here's a good question for all of us. Have I adopted a perspective that moves me away from the Christian ethic? Have I adopted a perspective that's moved me away from the Christian ethic on sexuality, on gender, on race, on justice, on hell? Have I adopted a perspective that has moved me away from the Christian ethic and moved me toward a popular and unbelieving culture? See, the goal of Scripture or the goal of a Christian isn't just to read Scripture. The goal of a Christian isn't just to know Scripture. The goal of a Christian isn't even just to agree with Scripture. The goal is to obey Scripture. We want to obey what the Bible says, and we obey it as an act of faith in Jesus because of who Jesus is. So the first thing you got to do is fact check your faith. Here's the second thing. Second thing is don't dismiss your doubt. Don't dismiss your doubt. Direct it. Many times we mistake faith for certainty. 
My hope is that as I'm talking to you today, that you share everything I'm saying with humility. Do I have a conviction? Yes. Do I have doubts? Sure. And if you're here and you have doubts, I'm glad you're here. If you're here and you've got doubts, this is the best place for you to be. This is the place you need to be if you got some doubts. The main thing, if you have doubts, isn't that you have doubt. It's that you don't detach yourself in your doubt. See, sometimes, admittedly, I don't think we as a church have done a great job with people who have doubts. And it's okay to have doubt. That's why, well, sometimes I meet people and they think that they're a bad Christian or they think, I don't even know if I am a Christian because they have some doubts. That's why I like the story of Thomas. Thomas is funny, man, because Thomas, none of us know anything about Thomas except one thing. Like, he could have done so many great things, but he did one thing, one time, and that has become his life story. But I'm glad it's in the Bible because we can even learn something from Thomas and his doubt. Uh, John 20, verse 24 says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, I like to call him Diddy. He, uh, he was one of the 12, and it says he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, Diddy, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So what happens, a lot of us hear that and we think, okay, Thomas, what a failure. You know, had his doubts. Why couldn't he believe like the other people? I don't know. He wasn't with them. The rest of them saw Jesus. He did it. Maybe, you know, he had to work that day. Maybe he was visiting sick grandma. I don't know. He wasn't there. But it says a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And isn't that awesome? That even though he didn't, even though he had doubts, he didn't detach himself in the doubts. He said, you know what? You're still my boys. I'm still going to hang with you. Just because I'm working through some stuff, I'm wrestling through some stuff, that doesn't mean I have to take myself out. He was with them, and I'm so glad he was with them because it says, even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Now, a lot of us read that, and what we think is that Jesus rebuked Thomas. You know what I see? That Jesus met Thomas in his doubt. And a lot of us who have doubts, if we would just do what Thomas did, not dismiss it, but direct it, if we would put it in Jesus' hands, God, here is my doubt. I've got some stuff I'm wrestling through, but I'm not going to detach in the midst of this. God will meet you in your doubt. You, you see, faith is developed in doubt. Faith learns to depend on God because of doubt. If you've got some doubts, that's okay. If you didn't have doubt, you wouldn't need faith. Think about it. If you didn't have doubt, you'd be certain. If you were certain, you would just know. The fact 
that you have faith, it implies you have some doubt. So be encouraged. The point isn't that you got rid of all your doubt. The point is you know what to do with it. There's another story. Peter, I mean, Peter, he walked on water. You know this story? Jesus said, come. Peter walked on water. And then while he's on the water, he started to doubt. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, why'd you doubt? But you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't take his head and hold on the water like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. (laughs) No, he held out his hand and he helped him up. That's what we're going to do. You got some doubts, we're going to help you along. So direct your doubt, don't dismiss it. But here's the last thing I want to tell you. Last thing, prioritize the practice of prayer. Prioritize the practice of prayer daily. I'll just tell you, we need to pray daily. The reason I like prayer is because it's a reminder that I'm not in control. You know, within all of us is a desire to control our lives. We try and do it in all sorts of ways. Try and control our schedule. Try and control our lives with our money. We try and control it with our ideologies, putting ourselves at the center where we feel safe and secure. But prayer is a reminder that we need help outside of us. I can't control all of this. I'm looking to you, Lord, for help. And sometimes we fail to pray because we miss the purpose of it. You see, the, the goal of prayer isn't, I'll put it this way, prayer isn't a place to be good. Prayer is a place to be honest. Sometimes we don't pray because we think, ah, it's so boring. You know what? The reason it's boring is because you're not being honest. You need to put your feelings in it. Some of your prayers, don't misunderstand me on this. Some of your prayers would be more effective if you cussed a little bit than if you said amen. I'm not trying to advocate for cussing. What I'm trying to say is some of you are so dishonest you think you got to get the language right and you got to have the setting right and you got to do the, and God does this sound right if you would just tell God how you feel and what's going on in your life it would actually help you God I feel like lusting after that person right now God I'm wanting to look at porn God I I've got this stuff and I'm feeling hatred towards this person. Could you be a little honest with God? If you would prioritize the practice of prayer, you would have a reminder that there is a God who is above you and bigger than you and knows you and cares about you and feels what you feel and can help you with it. In fact, maybe, maybe that's the next step for some of us right now. So we would take a moment to pray. That we would invite God to feel us in this moment. What you're going through, 